If you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, find verse 30, Romans 9, 30. And I, I really genuinely hope that uh, I'm not throwing any fathers or, or children for a loop here with what I'm about to say, but it is Mother's Day. And uh, if that is a surprise to you, feel free to exit immediately and save your marriage. In our family, that means that I will make Julie and her mom something they like to eat for dinner, which means that I'm going to be making Mexican food tonight. And I will also make them a dessert they like, which means I'll be making a lemon blueberry bunt cake because I am a Renaissance man, um, but also because I'm happy to do it. I, I, I love to cook. I love them. But let me ask an awkward question. Do I really have any choice? Seriously, think about it. Uh, in one sense, of course not. I mean, can you imagine the wrath of the two ladies I lovingly refer to as the mafia? If I did nothing today, hell hath no fury indeed. But in one sense, of course I have a choice. I have the choice to serve them and show them my appreciation, or I don't. So on Mother's Day... It is true that I don't have any real say in the matter of whether or not I'm going to celebrate my wife and my mother-in-law, and also that I have a very real choice as to whether or not I'm going to do that. Now, illustrations are by nature inadequate because they're incomplete. They they fly at 30,000 feet, and they really don't get into the details and can't communicate the fullness of what they're trying to illustrate. But the lack of freedom and freedom that we experience with Mother's Day goes to the heart of the pastoral concern that Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, is trying to teach in this section of the book where he's been addressing why the, the nation of Israel has rejected the Jewish Messiah that was promised in their scriptures, which they had known from their childhood, and why so many non-Jews, completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament prophecies, were accepting Jesus. And this is more than, than just a, a thought exercise, a theological puzzle for Paul. Paul is writing to a church that had a handful of Jews who were following Jesus, but who had many family and friends, maybe most of their family and friends, maybe all of their family and friends who were not following Jesus. And they were brokenhearted that their loved ones were not following Jesus as they were. They wanted to, to know why, what is going on. And Paul's uncomfortable answer in that first part of Romans that Zach taught you last week was that God had ordained their rejection for the purpose of causing Jesus' followers at the time to turn their attention from sharing only to the Jews to sharing with the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, and bringing those people that God had ordained to salvation to faith in Jesus. Now, the natural response that the Jewish believers had to Paul's startling statement was to wonder, well, if that's the case, is anybody really free to make any real choice in life whatsoever? And Paul actually gives two answers to that question. Last week, 
We saw that he answered that question by saying, God has ordained everything, even our acceptance or rejection of salvation, but he can be trusted with that, that responsibility. But this week, this week, he'll say, God has ordained everything, but you have a real choice, real agency, real responsibility with your life, and that's what is going to be the topic of conversation as he begins in verse 30. First, he, he reframes the question of why the Gentiles had embraced Jesus and Israel had rejected Jesus, beginning again in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, he's not saying here that the Gentiles, as a people, were completely unconcerned with morality. He's saying that they were unconcerned with pleasing the God as revealed by the Scriptures of what we would call the Old Testament. They'd, they'd never given any thought whatsoever to the rituals and the standards of the Jewish religion, and yet they were the ones who were the most open to following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. On the other hand... The Jews had followed what we had called the Old Testament. They had been obedient to, the, to the, the details of the Jewish religion. They were concerned with pleasing the one true God. They had built their entire lives around the, the rules and the rituals and the standards of morality of the Jewish faith. And yet, these with the prophecies of the Messiah were the ones who were most resistant to accepting the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So he's just reframed the question that was on the hearts of the Jewish Christians to whom he was writing, concerned about their Jewish family and friends. Don't ever lose sight of that. And then he asked this, why? Why did they do this? Voicing their question. And then he gives the answer, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The Gentiles had understood that being righteous, being right with God, required seeing God in His unapproachable holiness and seeing ourselves in light of our inescapable sin and simply throwing ourselves on this God in His good mercy. The Jews had instead continued to believe that they could be righteous that they could be made right with God by relying on their adherence to the rituals and the morality of the Jewish faith. In essence, they continued to believe that they were somehow worthy of the salvation that God would give, and that's the reason they had done this. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, in your copy of God's Word, that probably is set apart in type in some way and lets you know that, that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting Psalm 118.22. That psalm is a psalm of praise to God for his care for Israel in the face of the dismissiveness that they experienced at the hands of the world powers at the time in which the psalm was written. The empire builders of the time looked upon Israel and rejected them as of no consequence, no use to anyone, merely something to be taken. 
But God had taken what the empire builders had dismissed and made Israel the capstone of the empire that he was Lord over that would never end, and that's the gist of Psalm 118.22. But Jesus, when he walked the earth, showed that Psalm 118.22 was about more than just the nation of Israel. He, in fact, says, this is referencing me. In a rebuke of the Jewish leadership of their, for their opposition to him, Jesus says, he's the capstone. He's the stone of stumbling. The builders of the Jewish nation were tripping over him, rejecting him. And that's the understanding that Paul is referencing here. The reason, listen, the reason that Israel had been rejected by God was because they rejected God. So let's make sure we understand what Paul has done in Romans 9 to this point. Earlier in Romans 9, he said that Israel rejected God because God made a sovereign choice that they do so. But here, he says that Israel rejected Jesus because they had made the choice to do so. And he does nothing to resolve the tension between those two seemingly incompatible observations. Nothing. So let's linger on that for a minute. Should we try to resolve that tension? Should we try to figure out how God can be both sovereign over the choice of salvation and yet that we also have a, a very real, not an imaginary, freedom and responsibility to make that choice. Should we wrestle with that? Yes, absolutely we should wrestle with that. I wrestle with that problem regularly, and it's part of my growth as a follower of Jesus and as a student of Scripture, exercising my theological and biblical muscles and, and working that out is a part of my development. But I will say this, the 30-year-old preacher who thought he had it all worked out, even though the debate had been going on for 2,000 years, thought he, in rural Tennessee, had it all worked out, has become the almost 56-year-old preacher who, though he may have more insight into the problem than he used to, has accepted that this is a mystery that he'll never solve the side of eternity, and he's good with that. Because the mystery of God is where I personally most worship God. We think at times our worship with God is entirely dependent on us pulling him down to our sense of logic and how things work. So, because of that, we box God up, God can only act like this, and then we bludgeon everybody around us with our answers. But here's what I've noticed about me. I strangely don't feel as close to God when I'm trying to win a theological argument as I do when I hold the idea of God's sovereignty and my responsibility in tension. And acknowledge that his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. 
Because Paul was willing to hold these two things in tension, it permitted him to immediately shift his focus to a place it never gets when we are banging heads about this. He shifted his focus to others. And he shifted his focus to his obligation as a follower of Jesus, to his Jewish family and friends that he loved and that he saw rejecting the gospel. I want to show you how he does that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, I want you to think about everything he said in Romans 9. God made a choice, and yet his heart still burned to see his countrymen saved, and so he poured out his heart in prayer to God for their salvation, to which we might ask, well, why pray? What's he saying? If God's going to do what he's going to do, why does it matter? If it's all been determined by God, why does any of what I have to say to God, why does bending his ear matter? And Paul seems to be saying here, because none of us know who in Israel God would save. He himself, very unlikely to be saved. He was persecuting the church, and yet God redeemed him. And so he viewed every interaction with the Jewish nonbeliever as an opportunity to find someone God had chosen. He wasn't having coffee shop and online debates about this with his theological bros. His mission from God may have been the evangelization of the Gentiles. That's what Paul believed about his life. But he was never going to stop praying for the salvation of his loved ones and his kinsmen in the flesh, his countrymen, and sharing with them the gospel of Jesus anytime he got the opportunity. And the book of Acts, which is something of an early history of the Christian church, shows him doing just that time and time again. And what was it that he was sharing Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness, this is what I share with them, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What does he mean by that? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's standard of righteousness, how God makes us right with him. And here is how God makes us right with him. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. That's... That's three verses for him to say, when I'm given the opportunity, I am going to tell the bureaucracy of the faith about Jesus. He's going to tell them that as admirable as their zeal for the pursuit of obedience was, it still fell short of God's holiness and their only hope was to trust in Jesus to pay the debt of their disobedience and to provide them the right standing with God that they can't achieve on their own. He's going to tell them that rather than seek God's approval for what they do, they need to receive God's mercy for what they can never be. So while earlier in Romans 9, Paul said Israel continues to reject Jesus because of God's sovereign choice, today he said Israel continues to reject Jesus because they continue to make the choice 
to reject him. And he says both, go back and read Romans 9, he says both with equal conviction and makes no effort to resolve the tension. So while we should strive to the best of our ability to know to the best of our ability what Scripture says about this paradox, we should never excuse intellectual or theological laziness when it comes to the hard teachings of Scripture. Perhaps we should focus on what we can be certain of in this passage, and it's pretty clear what we can be certain of. In spite of everything else Paul is saying, He's saying there is no other path to salvation but Jesus. No other path to salvation but Jesus. And we should both make a decision, a personal decision, about responding to the call of God through Jesus, and we should lead others to know that they must make a decision about Jesus. So let's conclude by affirming two truths found in this passage. First... We build on Jesus. Paul said that the Gentiles were righteous, that they were made right with God because they were basing their standing with God on their faith in Jesus and nothing else. Now, that may have been something that came easier to them than it did the Jews because for a Gentile to choose to follow Jesus required them to clearly and decisively reject everything that had been true about their lives to that point. That was not the case with the Jews. They had followed the God of the Old Testament. They had been diligent about obeying him. They had done all of the things that one might expect of someone growing up in the Jewish religion, just like Jesus had done, except he obviously did it perfectly. So to hear that their efforts in this regard was not enough, and that they needed mercy from Jesus in order to be right with God, that they had nothing to offer, that was a hard pill for them to swallow. But for the Gentiles... Their entire worldview was built around the notion that their lives were pawns in the hands of the capricious gods of Olympus. And their lives were spent pursuing the attention of whichever of those gods they perceived might give them the best chance to have a good life. The vast majority of them spent their entire life thinking, I don't matter, and what I do matters only a little bit more. So when confronted with the truth that they were sinners who had angered God, they'd say, well, sure, I get that. But when they heard that this God, unlike the gods of Olympus, had taken note of them and loved them and cared for them and had paid the price in full for their salvation in exchange for his lordship over their lives... That was, that was a cup of cold water. And they knew by embracing this that they would have to leave the gods of Olympus and the society that had been built around belief in them and become really outcast. They understood that to follow Jesus meant to clearly and decisively reject everything that had been true about their lives and to build their lives on the foundation of Jesus, that they had nothing to offer. If we are righteous... 
If we are right with God, if we are saved, then we've made that decision to to follow Jesus, to decisively reject any effort on our part that can have merit or favor with him, to accept that we've done nothing to earn the Lord's favor. So we will either build our lives on that truth about Jesus and our need for mercy, or we will stumble over Jesus. It's likely that the source of the the Jews' stumbling will be the cause of ours, a bedrock sense of our own worth. We're steeped in that. <laughs> we believe that we're something else. And so we live fairly entitled lives. It drives me nuts because I, of course, am not entitled at all, he says, with a wink. Of course I am. I, I, uh, I get grumpy, especially when people are kind of projecting their entitlement, I feel like, on me. And uh, I live in a neighborhood with no sidewalks. And so if you want to walk, exercise, do whatever, you have to do it on the road. But you know what? I'm all the way over. I mean, I'm running in that little curbed thing by the side. I'm all the way over. And all the time, people are in the middle of the road. I kid you not, two weeks ago, I'm driving home through my neighborhood. There is a dude couldn't be more in the middle of the road, like he owned it. I didn't honk. I did in my heart. <laughs> Just this belief, I, this, I deserve this. I live here. I deserve to do whatever I want to do. We have... This bedrock belief in our own worth. And so when we hear that we are sinners, an object of God's wrath, and object that, hey, I'm a basic object, that idea of, of God's wrath against sin is outdated. We'll hear that we have nothing to offer God to make us worthy of salvation, and we'll proclaim our our good religion or, or our good morals gives us a leg up. And so we never find our way to God because we stumble over the belief that we need anything beyond what we are capable of offering. But we stumble over Jesus in the modern world in some less obvious ways. I know that there are parents here today who are grieving the abandoned faith of their now adult children, who have been frustrated by their own personal inability to debate their child back to faith. Perhaps their child has embraced a libertine sexual ethic and, and thus proclaims that you know, biblical sexuality is, is outdated or, or even bigoted. Perhaps they've embraced evolutionary thought, and they say that the notion of sin originating from one man and then spreading to all humanity is just primitive mythological hogwash. And so what do we do? We build arguments about those Areas in which we perceive them to be stumbling. So we build ourselves up on the topic of, of sexuality or on, 
on evolutionary thought. And so we go armed into our conversations with them with the information we think is going to debate them back, and we come away disappointed and, and many times honestly completely dismantled by their counter-argument. Why are we failing? Because we can't see that they haven't wandered away from faith because of a different sexual ethic or because they've dismissed Genesis. They have wandered away from faith because they have rejected Jesus. They've not stumbled over outdated morality or science. They have stumbled over Jesus, and we never talk to them about Jesus. So the reason that we are frustrated is because the conversation never gets around to Jesus. Think about it. Your end goal is, and at least it shouldn't be, to have your unbelieving child embrace a biblical sexual ethic or to confess that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Your end goal is, or at least should be, to lead them to build upon the Jesus they rejected. Am I saying that those other conversations are unimportant? No. Those are important conversations. But I'm telling you those other conversations are irrelevant if the issue's Jesus. That's what we need to be talking to them about. Because Jesus is the only issue for every person here. The only one. So as deep as the waters have been today, and I'll say again like I said a few weeks ago, the number one reason I delayed being your pastor for 15 years and coming to this is because of 9, 10, and 11 in Romans. It's been deep and it's difficult. But our takeaway is simple with this today. We are either building on the foundation of Christ or we are stumbling over him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.